Good morning, everyone. This, uh, this, this entire school year, we have been looking at prayer and prayer practices. And what we're doing this season is looking at the prayer life and prayer practices of those who are embedded in the Christmas story. And today, I want to introduce you to someone, and her name is Anna. Let me read her story to you. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a prophetess there named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. We meet this woman who's 84, a prophetess, she's called, who's devoted her life to spending time at the temple. And there's this phrase that Luke uses to describe her. She never left but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Praying, I think, is something many of us do. Fasting is something I think very few of us do. It's fascinating that the New Testament never commands fasting. But Jesus kind of assumes we're doing it. Um, Right after the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus is teaching about prayer, the very next thing he says is, when you fast. Not if you fast, not not maybe you'll fast. No, when you fast, as though it's just an assumed thing, you're going to be doing it. When you fast, do it in this way. Jesus tells his disciples. There's this one cool story where John's disciples came to Jesus and said, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Do you know who the bridegroom is there? Are you following the logic of it? It's Jesus. How can you fast when Jesus is there with you? Party time. But when he is taken away, when he is gone, while we wait for his return, then Jesus says the disciples will fast. How about you? What we're going to be talking about today is this this spiritual practice called fasting. What it is what it does, why it's important, maybe even how to start making it part of your own spiritual practice as well. 
Now, the season that we're in right now is called Advent. And um, it, it, it means basically arrival. And the idea behind it is the arrival of something or someone important. Now, I think for most of us, this season we're in right now has become a series of decadent feasts after decadent feasts after decadent feasts. Let me ask you, how many people are going to at least three family and or other Christmas parties this year? Right, yeah, liars, more of you out there. You got office party, right? You got your friend's house who has you over. You got, you got that side of the family. You got that side of the family. And there's the decorating, and there's the shopping, and there's the traditions, and there's the cards, and there's all the things that we set up that are meant to be these, these expressions of, of joy and meaning and fullness. It has become a, 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 a month-long Christmas feast. What's fascinating is the ancients looked at it differently. They looked at this season leading up to Christmas Day as something more rooted in the idea of repentance and preparation and fasting. And the reason why is because they knew that Christ was arriving. He was going to come. And that isn't necessarily good news if your heart isn't right with him. And so they took this intentional time every year to examine their heart. God, am I right with you? When you do, in fact, come and I stand before you, what will you see and what will be the condition of who I am? And those ancients, they knew themselves a little too well. They knew there was something that wasn't right in the world, both around them and within them. And so they took this time that we're in right now as a period to devote themselves to fasting, preparation, repentance. And and, and I can't help but think of how many people go through this season with almost a sense of hangover and weariness. All hype without substance. All these activities that are supposed to bring joy, but without much sense of real, deep, pervading joy underneath. Jason, um, our student pastor here, shared a a Facebook, a Facebook post with me um, just this past week. Let me show it to you. After going over my list of Christmas shopping and organizing, I realized I, like I'm just checking the boxes to get through my list. Anyone have any suggestions to make Christmas feel meaningful again? To which I bet a lot of us are having this experience right now going, how did he get my post, right? Uh, <laughs> If this is describing you, can I suggest something? Try fasting. Because there is something that isn't right in this world, and it's both around us and within us. In trying to deny that or push that down or hide it or mask over it with lights and gifts and food is a half measure at best. Try fasting. 
Because what I've come to find is it is very hard to have a Christmas feast if you do not first have a Christmas fast. And so what I want to do today is talk about this a little bit more, what it is and what it does. Now, I mean, at some basic level, we all know that fasting is giving up food for a period of time, though the Bible will talk about fasting in other ways as well. The the ancient Israelites, for example, every week would practice something they called the Sabbath, which is really nothing more than a fast from work. Paul will write to early believers, to married couples, encouraging them to fast from sex for a time, to devote themselves to prayer. I personally have found that in our day and age, fasting from electronics, going a day without your laptop, without your phone, without your tablet, without your TV, sounds brutally hard, worse than food, doesn't it? and is utterly refreshing to the soul. Regardless of what it is, though, it all kind of roots in the same idea at a more fundamental level. What what is this? I mean, what's it supposed to do? You, you, You with me? What is going on when we fast? And thinking about this and reading and so forth, I just want to share some observations about it with you today. Let's talk about what it is. At one level, what fasting is meant to do is is, is be an expression of devotion to God. And oftentimes, a response to loss and a response to lostness before God. It's an expression that ancients would practice and to go, God, I am lost without you. And by giving you my food, by giving you my whatever, I give you of me because I am utterly needful and dependent on you. I think of Anna from the story. For seven years, it said she was married to her husband and then widowed. And now at 84, for how many decades? Who even knows? Five, six, and that culture maybe seven decades, 70 Years devoted herself to God. Why? Because she lost her husband. She lost her soulmate. She lost the love of her life. She lost her future. And of course, in that culture and society, she lost her security. And her livelihood, the text never really says if she had kids or not, but you get the inference by the fact that she's at the temple that she didn't, or they were deadbeats. She had nothing. God, here I am, night and day, fasting in the temple. Lord, when I have lost everything else, I realize I am devoted. I need you. I need you. And fasting becomes this expression. God, I need you because I'm nothing whether I've lost my spouse or I live in in prosperity and wealth I'm nothing without you and it's often associated with this idea of intense prayer not just prayer I pray throughout the day how about you hey God how you doing right but have you ever had those moments I mean I'm talking like digging deep 
you know, intense prayer. I mean, there is something coming in. Your kid gets diagnosed with cancer. He tells you that he's seeing someone else. You come face to face with this, this corruption in your heart that is destroying you. And prayer starts ratcheting up a notch. Throughout the Bible, you see this, this linking of intense prayer with this idea of fasting. I think of the story of, of Nehemiah in the Old Testament and seeing the ruins left of the once great city of Jerusalem. Praying with, with, with such fervor that he gives up food. I think of the stories in Esther when they hear the decree that all the Jews are going to be slaughtered, massacred by order of the king. The people are gathering together praying to God with a fervor unrivaled and fasting. You see Jesus in the wilderness devoting himself to God, not only with prayer, but with fasting. It becomes an expression of intense prayer to God. And of course, it's rooted in repentance. There's this cool story. Um, Jonah the whale, you ever hear of him, right? Where Jonah's this prophet, and he's sent in to this, this, this wicked, violent city called Nineveh. And here's his message to a T. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, be with your hearts. You know, just in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, destroyed. And you know what the king of Nineveh does? He calls a fast. He even makes the animals fast, if you read the story, which is taking it to like whole new levels, isn't it? The entire city goes on a fast, and the king cries out, maybe, just maybe, if we repent and God sees that we're turning from our ways, he will repent himself and not destroy us. I think of Daniel living in exile, coming face to face that the 70 years of his life in Babylon have been the result of the sin of his people, devoting himself to prayer and to fasting and repentance. And I think of Anna, devoting herself, knowing full well who she is and the character of her own soul. God, here I am, a sinner, broken and in need. And it becomes a way that believers have used to seek God's guidance. I think of the church of Antioch. You can read about it in this New Testament book called Acts. As they're trying to discern who do we send out to carry this message of what we've discovered. And it was through what the text says, through prayer and fasting, that they landed on two people, Barnabas and a guy at the time who was named Saul. You might know him better as Paul. When they would travel, whenever they would go to a city and preach that gospel message of Christ, and, and people would come to faith. They would devote themselves to prayer and fasting, going, who do we raise up to leave behind? 
Who do we raise up to, to, to guard this and watch over this and keep this going? And it was through prayer and fasting. They would say, I think of Anna. How was she described? A prophetess. Is it any wonder that a prophetess whose vocation is seeking the will of God would devote herself not only to prayer but to fasting as well? It is replete throughout the scriptures, this idea, this practice from from the ancients of old through Jesus and his disciples themselves of fasting. This amazing, beautiful expression of devotion and prayer and repentance and the seeking of God. This is what it is, but it's more than that. I'd like to talk a bit about what it does as well. Because sometimes the scriptures will approach it from a different tack. Talking about the the benefit, if I can put it that way, or the result of what fasting does. I kind of came up with six. Let me just show them to you here. What does it do? And I found this one. It increases humility. See, we need food to survive, don't we? And the giving up of the very thing you need to survive is kind of a way of saying, you give it, I receive it. It's from your hand, not from me. I need you. Not only for the things that sustain my life, but for life itself. There's that really weird passage of Jesus in the wilderness. You remember this? He gets baptized. It's like mountaintop experience. Then it says God throws him out into the desert because mountaintops, sadly, are often followed by valleys. And he finds himself in the in the desert, for 40 days, fasting, which, geez, like, how do you even wrap your mind around that? And the biggest understatement of the Bible ever, it says he was hungry. <laughs> and it says Satan comes to him to tempt him. And I never really got this, but what Satan does is he comes to him and he goes, man, look around you. There's like rocks Everywhere. Have you ever seen a picture of a Middle Eastern desert? It's not like, you know, the white sand beaches of Jamaica or something like that. It's just like rocks everywhere. You're hungry, Jesus. Turn some of the rocks to bread. I never really got it. Yeah, totally, right? What's wrong with that? You can do it. I mean, it's a rock. It's not like it cares. Right? Right? Do it. And Jesus' response is fascinating. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even Jesus, who could turn rocks to bread, took this posture of fasting that said, everything I have is dependent on you, and therefore, Father, I humble myself before you today. Pride is one of those interesting things that kind of puts you on the shelf in God's plan. And if you're here today struggling with with pride, with arrogance, seeking a sense of, of, of awareness, of humility, try fasting. 
Make it a tangible expression that says, God, I acknowledge that I am dependent on you here today. And I've noticed this too. The link between prayer and fasting, how come? I'm going to venture something here and just go with me. I think because fasting opens time for prayer. Have you ever really tracked how much of your day revolves around food? Thinking about it, shopping for it, planning what you'll eat or where you'll go or where you'll carry out, preparing it or ordering it or picking it up, eating it, cleaning up after it, going to the gym to run it off, (laughs) or sitting on your couch in a lethargy going, oh, afterwards. Have you ever really computed how much of my day revolves around Food. And have you ever thought about like parties? Like, like y- y- you know what party is? It's an excuse to get together to eat. You've been to a wedding recently? It starts with what? Open. Right. And they're passing the hors d'oeuvres, which is just a holding pattern until we sit down and endure some speeches so we can get on to the main course. Right? After which we sit there and linger and some poor excuse for dancing happens out on the floor for an hour. The bar opens back up, which is really where everyone's mind is at at this point. And then there's dessert and the dessert bar. The latest thing I've seen with weddings in the past few years is now the 10 o'clock hit. At 10 o'clock, the pizza starts coming out or the burgers start coming out or hors d'oeuvre round two. I mean, it's just, it's just a big gorge fest, isn't it? Think about your vacations. Have you ever noticed how vacations are really just intermittent pauses between meals? Right? Yeah, we're going to get up and we're going to grab like the the free continental breakfast and then, okay, what are we going to do for lunch? And you kind of busy yourself in the morning looking forward to that. You get done with lunch. Okay, you know, maybe we should go to the bar. Maybe we should go to this place. Let's get a snack, right? Eh, What do we do after the snack? Well, what are we going to do for dinner tonight, right? Eating is the sum total of our lives. Can you imagine how much time you would have if you took every moment in a day that revolved around food and devoted it to prayer instead? Jeez. What would that do to your focus? What would that do to your spiritual posture? Here's another thing I think it does. It's a reminder of sacrifice. Because the way of Christ, at some fundamental level, is sacrifice. See, Jesus sacrificed everything for you and for me. The Christmas story is laden with this imagery and this idea that God himself humbled himself by leaving his throne and prosperity in heaven to come down to earth and be born in the most menial, humble, and poor of conditions. In his entire life, what does Jesus say? I've come to serve, not be served progressing all the way 
to even washing his disciples' feet and giving his life on a cross. The way of Jesus is rooted in sacrifice. And what it means to be a Christian is to be a little Jesus. You know, that's what it means, little Christ. It's like mini-me, right? That's what he does. That's what I'm going to do. Don't try the walking on water thing, though. It doesn't really go well. You with me, though? This is what Jesus does. This is what should mark me. And what I found is that by sacrificing a little, a piece, a slice of something like food for a day or electronics or what may, it becomes a living reminder that not just this piece, but my entire life is supposed to be one of sacrifice for God and his kingdom as well. And if you're finding yourself in this place of wondering what's in it for me, God, what are you doing for me? Why aren't you giving me my peace, my joy, my prosperity? May I suggest try fasting? And let it be a reminder of the kind of person God's calling you to be. I found this. Fasting becomes an incredible exercise in self-discipline. Have you noticed that parts of yourself don't get stronger if you don't exercise them? And in fact, if you don't exercise them, they get weaker. Here's the reality, guys. We live in a world that bombards us with temptation. Things that try to, to capture our heart, to devote our attention, to lead us to places that oftentimes are not honoring to the king. And fasting becomes a way of exercising that self-discipline, that self-control, because it's hard. You ever go? You ever do it? It isn't fun, especially when people are eating around you or you pass by your favorite restaurant. And it's a way of saying, by exercising in this way, I train my soul to resist temptation and to hold the course to endure more strongly. I found, guys, that it heightens spiritual awareness. And you'd think it would be the opposite, wouldn't it? Don't eat, your blood sugar goes down and... Uh, I found fasting to have the opposite effect. I don't like doing it, but I find the times when I do, and I do it with intentionality and purpose. It doesn't make me more dopey. It actually makes me more spiritually aware, more focused on God, more heightened in my senses to his leading, his voice, and his presence. Guys, are you struggling with experiencing God in your life. He makes a promise that he's here, but it isn't always easy to see. May I suggest if you find in yourself in that place, try fasting. 
And finally, throughout the scriptures, you see this idea that fasting expresses urgency. Think about it like a hunger strike before God. That people in their greatest times of need, when they are throwing themselves on God and seeking him with a fervency, will fast. God, I need it. God, this has to happen. God, we need you. Deliver, rescue, answer, save this can go off the rails if it becomes some kind of manipulative thing with God. I don't think he's going to play that kind of game. But it seems to be a way, in one fashion or another, that the ancients would say, Lord, I need you now because I can't eat if I don't get food. And I'm showing you that I need you in this situation also here today. What are you seeking God for with heart and soul? Fasting is not some formulaic answer that automatically guarantees what you want. But if you haven't gone that way at all, may I suggest trying it today? The season we're in, called Advent, is a season of fasting and of yearning. A season that by denying is meant to create hunger for the one who is to come. I want to encourage you. These next three weeks as the countdown to Christmas continues. If you aren't fasting, try it. Bring it into your pattern of Christmas card writing, shopping, and decorating that has come to mark this season. And see what it does to your prayer life, your spiritual strength, your connection and intimacy with God, your fervency in seeking him. I think you'll be surprised at what God, through this simple little practice, might bring your way. So I want to invite you to rise. The band is going to come forward, and as they do, I want to read this passage to you from a prophet named Joel. I want you to hear the urgency and fervency of God speaking through this prophet to his people. Listen to this plea God has to make. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Hear God's heart in this, return to me. Return to me with fasting, 
weeping and mourning, repentance. As part of our spiritual exercise, I'd like to spend a few moments doing that today. Things are not right in the world and things are not right within us. Repentance and fasting is an expression of that to God. And I encourage you right now to just in the quiet place of your heart bring him the things that you need to bring him. That you need to tell him and come clean on and confess to. We pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your presence and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. And who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God, Jesus, died for you. God's ultimate act of grace and mercy pouring our punishment upon his son for our forgiveness and salvation God's promise to the repentant you are forgiven our Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread he broke it he gave it to his disciples and said take and eat this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup after supper. He gave thanks. He gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Poured out for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come do this in remembrance of me. Welcome to the table of the Lord.